when somebody somebody who's been allied to you know or sort of joined with us in a the same collective political identity defects it's it's not just we're not just upset that somebody who we thought was important or articulate or something like that or or influential has left our side it's also kind of a threat i think to our own identity and the stability of it and the, and the reasonability of it so that that kind of can and that threat can produce a real extreme reaction that's daniel oppenheimer a writer and documentarian and the author of Exit Right, The People Who Left the Left and Shaped the American Century. Today we hear from Daniel about six 20th century political figures who abandoned their commitments to the left. Each of the stories you're about to hear, despite their many differences, shows us something about the nature of conversion and the fragility of belief. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. In his book, Exit Right, Daniel Oppenheimer writes about the political conversions of six figures whose names might be familiar. Whitaker Chambers, James Burnham, Ronald Reagan, Norman Padhoritz, David Horowitz, and Christopher Hitchens. Though each of these figures defected from the left in one, if not always, their stories are certainly not identical. Whereas Chambers and Burnham were both committed Marxists at one point, Reagan was never really a full-fledged lefty. And Hitchens, though a supporter of the Iraq War and a friend of neoconservatives, always bristled at the accusation that he was in any way on the right. Still, despite the differences between these figures, studying their respective apostasies can reveal something valuable and instructive about the changing political landscapes of the 20th century. And in a broader sense, the question their stories raise is really about us today. How and why our guest, Daniel Oppenheimer, asks, do we come to believe in certain political positions at all, either on the left, the right, or somewhere in the middle? Well, that's a good question, so let's ask it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Common Ground, which was recorded via Skype with Daniel Oppenheimer. Dan, thanks very much for talking with me. Um, so my first question, uh, uh, why did you choose to write a book about political conversion? What about that topic is, is compelling to you? Um, so it sort of, it sort of fell in my lap in a sense. Um, I had written a few stories at, at the time I conceived of the book. I was working for an alt weekly newspaper in Western Massachusetts and I actually had a whole other idea for a book that I was working on, a book proposal. It was kind of, and I was sort of struggling with it. And somebody pointed out to me that I had actually written two or three pieces, enough that they'd identified a pattern about these people who'd gone from the left to the right. I realized that that, that was the book I should be writing. I, I saw. I, I realized that that I was much more interested in this topic, and the, and the prospect of writing a book about this was much more appealing to me. And so then I guess the question presents itself: Why was I writing about these guys, and why was that? Why was that interesting to me? Uh, and I think there's a few answers to that. One is um, I grew up on the left. My, a parents, particularly my father, uh, was a lefty and, and to some extent an activist. Uh, my grandparents on my mother's side were Communist Party members, so that was kind of part of the, the air I breathed. And though I remain, though I was on the left and remain on the left, I struggled for you know most of my sort of adult political life with some of the orthodoxies of the left. And so it was interesting to me the prospect of of kind of going down that this path with these with these guys who actually went further than I did, but then took that all the way over to the right. And it was also just a means of exploring, I think, something more fundamental about, about you know, why we believe what we believe and how that connects up to our biography and our history and our emotions and our pathology and our neuroses and, and our highest ideals and everything else. Well, I'm glad you bring up the question of, of, well, sort of the book's politics, because, I mean, the fact that you write about figures on the left who defected to the right might signal to readers that yours is a case for conservatism, at least in the 20th century. But that's not really what you're up to, it seems. Instead, your question is, as you say, more fundamental. Why is it, you ask in your introduction, that each of us holds the beliefs that we do? Uh, why do we follow this set of politics, vote for this party, and associate with these people? So how do you go about answering that question in your book? The answer is is complicated. Is like it's all of the above. So I think that one of the one of the motives for writing the book or one of the perspectives that I'm coming from is that we talk about our politics, I think most of us, as if they're the product of, of reason, of pure reason. If not pure reason, then mostly pure reason, like sort of leavened slightly with, 
with other things. And I kind of think that has it backwards. I think our politics are mostly the product of the time into which we're born, mm-hmm. the family into which we're born, the context, uh, our emotions, our sort of character, our temperament. And, 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 and it's not that reason doesn't play a role, but reason plays a role as a kind of uh, in conversation with all mm-hmm. of those things. And, and I, so I don't think there is a, a simple answer. I, I like to sort of, you know, I know it's, it's bad, um, bad rhetoric to use Nazi examples, but I at least <laughs> like to do the quick thought experiment of, of pointing out that, you know, if most of us or, or had been born Gentiles, you know, during the rise of the Nazis, we would have, we probably would have either supported or been sort of passively complicit, um, in their politics and their ideology. And that seems kind of self-evident, but then when you think about what that means, it means that, that our, all of our politics are a lot more contingent than we like to think that they are. So uh, uh, you, you put that sentiment or that idea very well in your introduction. You write, it is easy to disparage other people's politics by psychologizing, historicizing, biologizing, or sociolo- sociologizing them. The harder and more important truth to admit is that everyone's politics are resonating on all these frequencies. So why do you suppose that truth is hard to admit? For instance, when someone defects from our camp or our tribe, why does it seem like our first inclination is to look at them suspiciously to say, oh, she just wanted to be closer to power or uh, he just wanted for the money? I, I mean, it's almost like I think it's hard to admit for like the same reasons that it's true in the first place, which is that, you know, we, we didn't evolve to be uh, rational. But, it, you know, it's like our brains are not not designed to see things clearly or easily. For whatever reason, there's this sort of irony that it seems like we evolved almost to think of ourselves as much more rational than in fact we are, which maybe that, I mean, again, I, like maybe that actually offers some adaptive advantage or something like that. Um, but it, I mean, it may be in, in, in more personal terms. I mean, it, it, it's just like our politics are deeply, deeply embedded from, for many of us in our identity and our sense of who we are. And, and so when somebody you know, somebody who's been allied to, you know, or sort of joined with us in a, the same collective political identity defects. It's it's not just, we're not just upset that somebody who we thought was important or articulate or something like that or, or influential has left our side. It's also kind of a threat, I think, to our own identity and the stability of it and the, and the reasonability of it. So that, that kind of, can, and that threat can produce a real extreme reaction and, and a desire to see the other person not as operating out of out of good or reasonable or sensible motives, but out of pathology and, and opportunism and, and, and nasty things like that. So, so you write about six thinkers uh, initially on the left and who moved to the right. I want to give each his due. So I'll ask about the conversion story of each person, and then later we might be able to get into what connects all of them. Let's, let's start with the ex-communists, uh, Whitaker Chambers and James Burnham. Uh, so both grew, you point out, both grew disillusioned with the Soviet Union and abandoned communism on the basis of principle. Chambers wrote his famous memoir, Witness, about his conversion from the communist left, and Burnham had a very famous falling out with uh, Trotsky. Could you talk a bit about these two conversions? What caused them, and how were they similar, and how were they different? Um, yeah, so Whitaker Chambers, um, you know, most of the, both of these guys were sort of writers, intellectuals, and, 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 and kind of um, had their most influential, important moments as communists or socialists in the 1930s, when a lot of American intellectuals were were attracted to and became allied to a form of Marxism or another. Chambers is interesting, he actually became a communist uh, a number of years before that, during you know, during the Roaring Twenties, um, and for him it was just he was this. You know how to characterize him? He was this, you know, deeply feeling, deeply emotional, rather brilliant, um, but pretty dysfunctional guy who was searching, who was seeking urgently for some system of meaning that would kind of help orient the world for him. He became attracted to, to Marxism in the nineteen twenties. And then ended up joining the Communist Party in a really committed way after his uh, younger brother committed suicide. A complicated relationship to that, but but so he became a communist um, for a while. He was just a regular party member. He came to some notice first as a writer of uh, Marxist-inspired fiction. He wrote a few stories, um, I think in 1929 or 1930, that were published in the New Masses and and were really loved by communists, not just in the 
in the states, but all over the world. He had a kind of they were he almost told, they were almost like a sort of adventure tales. They had a kind of boyish enthusiasm and 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 melodrama to them. Um, and so after the success of those stories, he was briefly um, hired as one of the editors of New Masses. And then not long after that, for reasons I don't think anybody quite knows, he was tapped by the Communist Party underground to be a spy, um, which in a sense he didn't kind of didn't want to do and did want to do. The, the idea of being a spy very much appealed to the romantic sense of him, but he was also very happy in this sort of out in the world as a public uh, literary Marxist. So he became a spy and uh, ran, helped sort of conduct espionage for the Soviet Union, ultimately for the Soviet Union in, in New York first, and then ultimately he ran this uh, small spy ring in D.C. that included some relatively high-level uh, government officials, including most famously Alger Hiss, um, who is, a, I think, deputy of Secretary of State or, 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 or an assistant to one of the – somebody high up in the State Department. Um, and he, he broke with the party after a number of years, and it was kind of a combination of the, the grueling nature of, um, of kind of underground life, the secrecy, the moving around, the lying. Uh, also, he became more and more – to learn more and more about the, the sort of true horrors of what were going on in the Soviet Union, um, which he had sort of you know, been able to ignore for a long time. Uh, but he began to open himself up to that. And this was like the Great Purge? Right, and so and, and and he started learning about all these, you know, where where the people who were this this wasn't, in a way, wasn't just people who were dying, you know, as a result of collectivization and, and famine. This was some of the the leaders and heroes of the Bolshevik Revolution mm-hmm. that Stalin had, you know, singled out as as enemies of the state for his own paranoid and nefarious reasons, and so. His, this this idea he had of what the Soviet Union was and what what who the Bolsheviks were was was kind of eroded and then ultimately destroyed, um, and and then on top of that there was this sort of misery of life in the underground and ultimately it just all became too much for him. Um, he finally found the strength to find another system of belief that that was as comprehensive and, and intensive uh, to fill the void that would be left. By, by Marxism. That was Christianity. He became, he'd always had sort of religious impulses, but, but this was the first time that he really began to kind of indulge, not indulge in them, but to, to sort of pursue them. And he started praying and, 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 and believing and then ultimately broke from the party. So, so he breaks and what is it like for, so once he, once he leaves, you point out um, that, uh, about Chambers, that to leave the party wouldn't simply entail a change of political ideas and loyalties. It would render meaningless all the sacrifices he's made in communism's name. And it would, if he proved unable to replace communism with a new and equally substantial belief system, leave him bereft of purpose in the world. So what was it, I mean, perhaps before his conversion to Christianity or during it, what was it like for him uh, in America as a defector, essentially, or as, as someone who left communism? Well, I mean, the, the conversion came before he had sort of officially left the party. I mean, he, there was a period of time when I think he was totally miserable. I mean, on top of the difficulties on his wife and his children, there's also he has this kind of double secret life. He'd started sleeping with other men, kind of indulging in an attraction to other men that he kept um, suppressed. And, and that was a source of enormous shame, obviously pleasure too, but enormous shame and strain and stress. I think there was a period of time when he was probably just unbelievably miserable um and it was it was i think you know if you believe his the story he tells that it was his discovery of of you know faith in christianity that kind of rescued him from that and gave him the strength to break from the party um you know and the story he tells in in witness and and there's the actually there's two great books about whitaker chambers one is is his own autobiography witness and the other one is the uh, biography of him that Sam Tannenhaus wrote, but but the story of his preparations to break from the party are, are kind of fascinating and melodramatic, and like something out of a spy novel. And he, I, I don't totally know whether that was necessary. I mean, he feared for his life, and I think there was some legitimacy to that. He feared that if it was known that he was going to leave, that that he might be he might be killed. Uh, that he knew too much. Uh, that and uh, you know, uh, impossible to know in retrospect whether that was true or that was his own kind of sense of of drama. But he believed that that was true, so he took incredible precautions sort of in terms of preparing his break, creating a false identity, getting a job with the government um, in order to kind of establish establish his, you know, his existence and, and 
getting a car that couldn't be traced, and identification papers, and renting a renting a place that 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 nobody would know about, and all of these things, and then finally breaking. Um, after he broke, you know, it wasn't as bad. It wasn't as bleak as he feared. He still had um, friends from uh, he still had friends from before from from his undergraduate days as at Columbia. So what about, in comparison to that, what about James Burnham uh, and his falling out with Trotsky? How would you characterize that uh, conversion? So Burnham had, so Burnham was, in a sense, more typical of American intellectuals in, in that, that he'd had no interest in Marxism before the, the crash of the stock market and the, you know, and, the, and the Great Depression. He was a philosophy professor at what would become NYU and, and, and founded a journal of arts and letters and really no interest in economics or politics at all. And then after the world got turned upside down, like many American intellectuals, he, he became interested in, in, in Marxism. And after sort of debating for a number of years, kind of slowly becoming more and more immersed in it and, and debating who he would attach to, and he briefly considered attaching to the Communist Party, um, he ended up allying with the main Trotskyist group. An awful lot of his work ended up consisted of, of, of writing pieces, writing pieces about American politics through a Trotskyist Marxist lens. And I think for him, you know, the, the break ended up coming as it did with with a lot of American intellectuals, you know, in response to the sort of failure over the course of the 30s of, of the Marxist ideology and, and, and system to really accurately predict what was going to happen. It was the sort of failure of the the failure of the revolution to arrive and also the stubbornness of a lot of Marxists in sort of... Having their belief system accommodate and respond to reality, the, the kind of just the, the true true ideological nature of Trotsky and, and a lot of Trotskyists, and so he became more and more disillusioned with that, and, and less and less. And it was a real intellectual problem, less and less convinced of you know a dialectical you know materialism and, and things like that. So, in your view, his was more of an intellectual shift. He was just realizing that the arguments uh, from from his perspective as a former Trotskyist just weren't working anymore. They weren't working anymore. They weren't explaining the New Deal and the ways in which uh, the United States seemed not to be, you know, it was struggling, but it wasn't falling apart in the ways that, that his fellows. He was also just an odd fit, I think. He was an odder fit for that world than, than most people. I mean, he was sort of a, you know, American blue blood uh, with, you know, all of these, uh, you know, Jewish and, you know, working class Gentile thinkers and activists and there's like a funny story about, you know, somebody one of his one of his Trotskyist fellows, you know, rushing over to his apartment to get, you know, to, to consult him on something and they're in the middle of some knocks on the door and he's in the middle of some black tie black tie party with all his, you know, fancy uh, fancy, you know, fellow Prince to love. So so, you know, in a way it was it was an, it was a, it was a tough fit for him in, in a lot of ways throughout and and probably inevitable in that sense that 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 as the times change and 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 the alignment between Marxist theory and and the facts on the grounds came less and less harmonious um, that he would he'd start looking to to leave. Well, speaking of odd fits, the next uh, the next portion of your book is committed to Reagan. His conversion was I think you write something like his conversion was. Odd because it really wasn't a conversion. I mean, he was sort of on the left as a as a young man, but really transitioned when when he was re- working as an actor. Could you talk a bit about that? Why why include Reagan in this book? Certainly, during you know living through the depression, and I think he saw as so many people did, he saw Roosevelt as a kind of benevolent father figure. Um, so he's never really a lefty. Though there's some he was his his lefty friends in Hollywood at various points tried to recruit him, and there's some suggestion. Somebody has said that he actually explored. You know, joining a socialist party at some point, though there's no hard evidence for that. But I think it's plausible that he looked into it. Um, nobody ever suggested that he actually did it. Um, so he was a and 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 his conversion or, or or his very very gradual transformation, you know, was the product of a lot of things. You know, one of them was I think temperamentally he was always very conservative. And and there's you know one of this kind of I kept coming across. There were a few moments well before he ever showed any explicit conservatism when uh, conservative friends of his would try and persuade him to run for office um, as a Republican, which was, I think they were just sensing something in him. 
and they were sensing obviously he had conservative friends he was very drawn to a certain type of person and then after then but he was a, he was a, he was real liberal liberal till after the war and for a few years after i mean one of the big things that changed for him was he became involved in the fight against communism um which played out in interesting ways in hollywood um and became and, and i think he was looking for a cause i think it appealed to him for a number of reasons um i think there were you know communists in hollywood who and this is in no way to justify the blacklist but there were you know there were some real you know shady operators or dishonest operators um communist operators in hollywood who really were doing things like trying to sort of quietly subvert liberal and left-wing organizations he was always a a, a patriot in in the traditional sense another key factor was was going to work for general electric after his movie career had really stalled and he went to work for GE as a spokesperson and as the host of their weekly general electric theater and 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 so for i think uh, 8 or 9 years from about 52 to 61 that was his main gig and that was a period during which general electric was engaged in kind of one of the most comprehensive political kind of educational campaigns that an american corporation has ever undertaken um and it was a it was a conservative anti-labor anti-new deal uh campaign and so they didn't require that reagan adhere to that but he was just immersed in that in that world and he was reading that literature and he was you know powering it up with with the executives who believed that devoutly um and and over that that was really the period of time during which his his kind of mature conservative philosophy developed and it was also through that role he began going out and speaking he started out when he started out for GE and he would speak to employees and civic groups and so on it would be really just he you know fun stuff he talk about hollywood and what it was like in the movies and it, and it started to evolve he started to get more political um and that so that was really in addition to the work he'd done with the screen actors guild kind of really where he 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 matured as a as a political actor so if if Reagan's conversion was gradual to the point of not really being a conversion. Your next chapter with Norman Pat Horitz is the opposite. So, Pat, well, Pat Horitz was, um, as you point out, was a, a sort of 60s leftist in... Am I getting... No, I'm thinking of Horowitz. Pat Horitz uh, uh, moved from the left to neoconservatism. Um, and this... Uh, you, you have a, so a passage in your chapter on Pat Horitz that's fascinating. I didn't, I didn't know any of this, the, the, the making it portion were. So, so Pat Horitz writes this, this sort of self-congratulatory memoir about uh, moving up the ranks of the New York intellectuals, and his former mentor, Lionel Trilling, just begs him not to publish it. Um, uh, could, you t- could you talk about that? What, what significance does the publishing of this memoir ha- have to uh, Pat Horitz's uh, conversion? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really significant. I mean, I think um so so there's two things to say that. One is, you know, so so it may be the case that if not for the publishing of this memoir and the reaction to it, he would have gone right anyway. A lot of his friends and and colleagues, a lot of the people who we think of as that kind of first generation of neoconservatives had a lot of the, you know, had had similar interests and inclinations and backgrounds to him. They didn't all move to the right. Um but that was happening and i think it's fair to guess that to some extent it would have happened with him also that said i think it would have looked very different it would have had a very different color so he wrote this memoir that was that was kind of emulating his friend norman mailer's advertisements for myself it was about what what he called the kind of it's like the dirty secret of the of the american left which was its ambition and its desire for success and he had wrestled his whole life with a kind of tension between his own ambition and desire for success and what he perceived i think accurately as as a kind of hostility to that or discomfort with those ideas on the left you know with on the sort of you know marxist not say marxist but marxist influenced left and so he had this sort of internal contradiction and he decided that the way he was going to deal with that tension was to write a book about it was to write about write an autobiography a memoir that was also about his desire for success and his actual success and by writing this book he would sort of demonstrate how one could in a sort of artistically fruitful way um talk about success uh, explain why success the desire for success was legitimate and then ultimately 
you know, the coup de gras at the end would be a, it would be successful. It would be a successful book. It would elevate him from his already fairly elevated status as a kind of player in the, you know, New York American literary intellectual world to to one of the you know one of the real writers of the moment to 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 the level of his friend Mailer and, and others and some of his mentors, people like Lionel Trilling. Um, and so it was it was quite a you know I think I say in the book you know he had. You know, Pointed to the to the right field fence that he was gonna you know right, he was gonna hit a homer and and and, and he ended up you know maybe maybe like dribbling a single over over you know for first base but even worse than that I mean so so in retrospect looking at the book if if you read it now you'd say oh, it's like a decent book it's got some problems maybe it's a single maybe it's a double at the time it just got totally creamed and I think it was because it was a lot of things he was a it was, it was people wanting to take him down a peg because he was a uh, he was he was a cocky figure. Um, he was a cocky sort of self-satisfied figure. Uh, I think he was a good writer. I think he was a really good editor. So I mean, some some self-satisfaction was justified. But he's just one of those people who other people wanted to take down a peg. Um, the other thing was just the book was like it, it just it, it it both struck at a genuine unease in a way that he had he had correctly diagnosed, but it was not quite good enough to sort of. Um, to kind of handle that on it, it kind of rebounded back on him, and so just a lot of really nasty reviews, uh, including by Mailer, use words like like little like the just sort of diminutive kind of mocking words, and the and the pictures, the illustrations they do were kind of mocking. As you you point out, his his best pal Mailer was the one who wrote probably the the harshest uh, criticism of his book, and then. So, so following that, you point out that Pat Horowitz goes into this deep depression, sort of starts drinking a lot, and then comes out of it a neoconservative. Uh, for, for that reason, I, I think you suggest that some people have thought that the initial reasons for his conversions weren't so authentic. But then again, Pat Horowitz ha- became and is, is still a massive figure among neoconservatives. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, um, yeah I mean, so he... Uh, he went into this after the book came out, and, and particularly after he had been hope counting on Mailer's review. Mailer had actually read some of the book initially and said he liked it and was going to write a review going after all of its critics. I think what happened is he, he sort of read the whole thing and he didn't like it as much. So, so Pedroitz was counting on that review to sort of redeem him, and instead it, it kind of it, it kind of tore him down more. Um, and he went into a real depression, I think, for like two years, and he was drinking too much. He was trying to write another book that he was failing to write. Um, and um, and yeah, of all the people in the book, I would say what was interesting about Pedroitz is is I I won't say the person he was on the other side of it, but at least the writer he was on the other side of that experience was really profoundly different. Everybody else in the book, and this is true of most of us, even who go through pretty dramatic political transitions, we still kind of seem like that we have the same vibe, um, uh, you know, on one side of it. As we and and Pedroitz really changed. I mean, he, he you know I. I think I say at the end of the chapter on him, when he, you know, when he started writing again, he sort of took a break from writing or at least publishing for a few years. When he started writing again, I think in 1970, you know, it wasn't even like he wasn't young. It wasn't even like he wasn't young anymore. It was like he'd never been young. Like he sounded like a, he sounded like a sort of cranky um, old fogey. And I, I think personally um, kind of never wrote anything that good again. Um, and I think he'd written some really good stuff. Um, that doesn't mean it's not a genuine conversion. It doesn't mean it's not, we shouldn't take seriously what he had to say. I think that, you know, what he had to say and the insights he, he gleaned from his time on the left were interesting ones and, and, and powerful ones. Um, you know, and this is why it gets tricky. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm making the argument that this was de- deeply personal and in some sense kind of a kind of dysfunctional reaction to disappointment and embarrassment and humiliation. I think that's true. And yet, that doesn't mean that what he has to say on the other side of that is without legitimacy or, or is worth uh, just dismissing for that reason. So an- another big convert, the next one on the list is David Horowitz, uh, who was uh, a 60s New Left activist at, at Berkeley, but then became an ardent conservative. What was ve- what's very interesting about what you point out about Horowitz is that, and this is a quote, Horowitz was at his most humane and compelling as a writer 
when he was saying goodbye to the left, but hadn't yet located himself anywhere else. Um, could you talk about that? That relates to one theme in your book, which is this idea of tension, that we're, we're, we're our best sort of political thinkers when we're living in the tensions and contradictions of our ideas. Yeah. You know, the only sort of evidence I have for that is, is my own my own intuition. But, you know, what the, uh, the process of researching this book, I'm kind of reading these people and how they're writing over the course of a, of a long span of time. And, and as, a, as a sort of early left-wing thinker and writer, you know, Horowitz has some interesting things to say, but I, I didn't find him very interesting to read. I didn't find him, it, it seemed, not so much dogmatic as just a kind of boringly systematic thing. He had a, he had a thesis and he was going to, and kind of lawyerly, like he had a thesis and he was going to prove his thesis and adduce evidence towards his thesis. Um, the stuff of his I liked the most, he wrote a piece, um, I think in 74, before he was breaking with the left, but when he was pretty exhausted. Um, that was trying to reckon with just the kind of the ways in which the left had had failed or dissolved over the previous few years, and 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 and, and kind of reckoning with, you know, both its own responsibility for that, um, and also just kind of looking towards the future in ways that it might reconstitute itself. The best, the best thing he wrote, I think, for my money, was this piece he wrote in 1980 when he was at, he was gone from the left, but was not yet on the right. Was sort of just an independent journalist and writer. Um, about a woman named Faye Stender who had been a radical lawyer um, on the left. And he wrote this piece about, he went back and wrote this piece about her life um, in which he interviewed a lot of her old friends and a lot of his old colleagues and comrades. Um, and it was a real sort of artful work. He wrote it with his uh, friend Peter Collier, who uh, has co-written a lot of stuff with him. It was a real sort of artful and thoughtful piece of new journalism. Um, and and he and he wrote a few more pieces in that vein. He wrote one about the weather underground that I thought was um, was also good. Again, it's interesting. Like like that one, the face tender one. I think it's called Requiem for a Radical. Was like was on that point of tension. Was like right on that balance. And then after that, you know, the weather underground one is good, but it seems like there's more kind of opinionating that seems heavy-handed and a little bit more anger that he didn't seem in control of. And then he wrote an interesting piece on um, sort of gay life in San Francisco and then the, the public health threat of the bathhouses that was even more like it was interesting and it was sort of, he made interesting points but he had this sort of kind of disgust but didn't quite contain and so you could, you could see him like there's this brief moment when he's balancing on this edge, this sort of productive edge of tension and then, and then as time goes on he kind of falls further and further off it and the stuff that he's writing to my, to me anyway becomes less and less interesting finally uh there's christopher hitchens who uh you know you you said even earlier that kind of i mean perhaps this is the only way he's like reagan uh it's that he's uh he's a bit off for this book but i think actually probably closer to uh well i think there's a case to be made for thinking about him in, in terms of conversion uh so he was he was the least conservative and for his whole life he was a, a self-proclaimed socialist um I, it's just that one might say his views on the iraq war sort of overlapped with those of cons neoconservatives and so he found he found some home there before uh his his early death um but it's i think the case to be made for his inclusion in the back of this book is that his falling out with uh, other leftists, Alexander Coburn and, and Sidney Blumenthal, uh, was significant and, and profound. So how do you categorize Hitchens in this Yeah, letter? and I, I think that's exactly right. I think it's not quite right to say that he became a conservative, but I think it is fair to say that he let, there was a decisive break from the left. You know, and an alternate title for the book at one point was Leaving the Left. Um, which may have been in some sense more accurate than exit right, at least in his case. Um, yeah, I mean, he, you know, when I, what I, I mean, in, in a sense, there's a sense in which the whole book was kind of born out of my fascination with, with an admiration for Hitchin, uh, who I really kind of fell in love with intellectually when I started reading him. You know, as somebody who, as I said, you know, grew up on the left but had my issues with it, there was this incredible sense of liberation reading him when I started reading him in college. And, and his, you know, he, he was so, like, sort of wonderfully 
nasty about the left while at the same time being so wonderfully uninhibited about being on the left. Seemed to ha he seemed to lack this sort of self-consciousness or neuroticism about believing left-wing things that so many American leftists, so many other leftists, maybe coming off of the defeats of the 60s or whatever else, or living in the Reagan era, felt had this kind of anxiety about it, which he had not. And so he was, he was kind of exhilarating in both directions. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think I say somewhere he was kind of like the, uh, something old uncle of the left, or he's like Waldorf and Stadler, you know, up in the balcony, you know, lobbing insults. And so I loved that. And, and, and after, you know, the Iraq war and his sort of increasing, you know, support for, or after 9-11, everything kind of fell apart. And it seemed like, you know, um, and, and people like Andrew Sullivan and, um, and others who had been cheerleaders for the Iraq War, but really started to reckon with the reality of it, the disastrousness of it. And Hitchens kind of doubled down. Um, well, and that's the argument, it seems, that can be made by, by the left, uh, the leftist who he sort of really alienated himself from, is that he was the one, even, even longer than conservatives like Sullivan, he was the one who was, this, in, in a sense, the sort of moral and intellectual force for a pro-war ideology in America. I mean, was that the root of the real uh, rancor of the end of his life? I mean, I think, I, yeah, I'm try, I, you know, I struggle with how exactly to characterize it. I mean, he had, I write about this, and I believe this, though it, it kind of, you know, I, I, can't, I can't document it as so much as just sort of intuitive that, that he had this sort of suppressed um, uh, sense of like the white man's burden his whole life, that he came from this, you know, lineage of military men, and or whether it was to sort of, you know, the white man's burden to redeem the, you know, the rest of the world, or it was this desire to redeem the honor of the, of the, the British and then the American empire. I mean, I think that was, I think that was there and that was strong mm. in him and it kind of, and it was given, and then it, and then it merged with these other things that were genuine with him, which was a genuine empathy for the people who were who were suffering and a genuine um, antipathy to to fascists or neo-fascists, quasi-fascists like Saddam Hussein, and a desire after so many years of sort of trying to fight against power on behalf of the suffering, a desire to see power wielded on behalf of the suffering. That kind of merged with that with that other stuff, and also merged with, as I said, he'd always had his issues with the left, and and then on top of that, it was like a perfect storm, you know. And then on top of that, there was his his great admiration for George Orwell and his desire to kind of have his, you know, Orwell during World War II moment when when he stood up and said, yeah, 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 all the flaws of of capitalism and and the, you know, imperialist West, uh, yes, I still agree with that, but at some point you come down to it, it's, there's like civilization on one side and barbarism on the other, and I'm going to, and you know, when civilization is under threat, I'm going to stand with it against barbarism. And so all of these things came together for him. Um, and, and that, and then, and then, uh, you know, and then he couldn't get out of that, I guess. And, and I, and I don't know why maybe, and, you know, and I say this and you have to be careful about, you know, talking about his drinking and but, but I think it's legitimate to wonder whether, you know, whether so many decades of, of drinking and smoking had kind of um, dulled his brain to the point, and age two makes us, tends to make us less flexible and less able to change course. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know the answer, but it seems like he doubled down and, 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 um, and, and, and couldn't come back. And, and, you know, and for my money, it kind of, you know, similar to, Hor to Pador, it's like, I don't think he wrote anything that interesting in the last five or ten years of his life, uh, and there could be a lot of reasons for that. But um, but it didn't seem like there was a there was a productive tension anymore um, for him. So that's really interesting that you point that out. Um, I, I I remember uh, watching. I, I've seen this clip many times. It's on YouTube. It's probably got like seven million views or something because Hitchens has this really it seems like this really ardent following on on YouTube, but uh, uh, the, I think a few days after 9-11, he was uh, on CNN or something, and uh, when he, no, it was longer than that after 9-11, but he was talking about 9-11, and he said, you know, when, when he watched the towers fall, he said, I felt a, a kind of exhilaration, uh, at last a war of everything I loved against everything I hated, so he was talking about how he loved democracy, 
um, and despised fascism or fascism with an Islamic face, as he would, as he would later phrase it. I mean, is that was that in your reading? Was that him abandoning tension and just and just going with the fighting with a white hat on and attacking those people who have the black hats on? I, yeah, I think it was, and I think like it was, you know. It was funny because he, I mean, he had such a complicated relationship to tension and ambivalence. When he wrote about politics, he was always trying to find the position from which, you know, within which there was no, no ambiguity. There was no, there were no moral trade-offs. There were no lesser of two evils. And so there was this sort of drive in, throughout his life to identify that position. But I think because, because other things kept him in this role where his role sort of required tension that ended up producing some really good writing and then I think in a way you, you can make the argument that when he went over when he sort of let go of that and severed himself from the left and so uh, he was still writing and trying to find the, the clear moral position you know without any ambiguity or or, or moral compromise um, but then he also didn't even occupy a role anymore that had sort of structural tension yeah I think it just it just went he just didn't there was there wasn't you know and this stuff is mysterious right what where where for each of us that place is but for him it didn't seem to be uh, there and I did want to say one thing you know about that quote because a lot of people about you know a lot of people use that to sort of tear him down yeah that he sort of felt exhilaration about going to war about seeing the towers uh, you know fall down and and you know to me so that quote is very you know and you used it well it's very illustrative of certain aspects of him I kind of hate. I hate using things people say like that when they own when they own what's personal and about politics to them, what's kind of emotional, dismiss them. Like I hate that idea like like as if we're not all functioning now. Well he I mean Hitchens would have been the first one to own the fact that for that politics was deeply emotional for him and that I, I think he said once and and I think my my, my like you know, I picked up your book in part because Hitchens' name was on it. I, like, like you, he was he was influential on me, and I, I remember once, you know, reading him write something like, "Actually, hatred can be a, a good a good reason to get up in the morning and and, and, and write," which I just thought was hilarious because of how uh, uh, contrary to a popular opinion or sentiment it is. I have one more question. I, I'd like to transition to broader conclusions about each of these figures and what what connects them. I, I would like to give you, if you do have any thoughts though, um, since I'm interviewing right now and there's this debate going on sp specifically about Hitchens in this book out by, have you been reading the debates about the Larry Taunton's book? Yeah, a little uh, bit. Well, my brother, uh, my older brother, Mark actually wrote a piece for the times about the book. It's gotten a lot of heat. So I, <laughs> I have an inside view in that. Do, do you, do you have any, do you have any comments on that or the debate between it? So your, your brother, Mark, and then David from, Wrote a piece, and and it's it's really, and then Peter Hitchens wrote something back to David Frum, and it's this, it, it's, it's it's turned into a debate. So, do you have any uh, stances? I'm used by it. Five years from now, nobody's gonna remember Larry Taunton or his pretty like thin, thinly evidenced suggestion that that Christopher Hitchens was having doubts, right? And and and, and rem, I'm sorry, remind us about the thesis of the book. It's that he was having doubts about his own antithesis. They took two long drives together, and they talked a lot about about religion and the Bible and Christianity, and, and had good, thoughtful discussions. And I haven't read the book. My sense is from that 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 Taunton is kind of reading between the lines and saying he thinks there was evidence that Hitchens was actually having genuine doubts about about his atheism and was was genuinely intrigued by you know, Christianity for spiritual reasons. and But I don't think even Taunton claims there's hard evidence of that. And I find that kind of hard to believe. That seems like that, that goes so so much against everything that, that Hitchens believed um, and wrote that, that it just doesn't, it doesn't add up. It doesn't pass the smell test. So that's that's the book that Taunton right? And it seems pretty, also just like, it seems pretty opportunistic. Like the, the book seems pretty opportunistic. Um, and so, you know, I, I understand Hitchens' friends and defenders being angry about that, what I guess I would say not being, you know, not feeling responsible for that is A, it'll all be forgotten, right, um, in a year or six months. And to the extent that Hitchens is remembered, he'll be remembered for these other things uh, and not for that. Um, 
And the other thing is there, there just does seem to be something off. He's the guy who just, you know, whenever one of his enemies died, you know, if possible, he was on CNN the next day. You know, write articles. Sure, write articles saying this is bogus. Write articles saying that this guy is, being, is an opportunist. The genuine kind of anger and, and offense seems, seems misguided and in some sense not true to the, to the spirit of Hitchens. I think Hitchens would have, you know, if, if somehow he could come back from the grave to respond to this, you know, in my fantasy, he would do it, but he would do it with a lot of flair and, and fun and and kind of delicious nastiness, which would have been the appropriate way to do it. Well, so I guess uh, in follow-up to these six narratives then, I guess my, my first question is simple. What in some do you think unites these six figures? Did they each... Uh, um, did, did they each see something fundamental in the left that they didn't like uh, that was common to um, leftism from Chambers all the way up to Hitchens? Or are they united by something else? Or is, uh, are they united by nothing? It's sad that I don't have a better answer to that at this point after after writing the work on the book for like nine years. Um, I'd say a few things. I think, I think there's a few themes. I think... Um, it was, you know, it, it's weird to say this is a rediscovery because I knew this stuff, but it, it's a, it was a rediscovery in the sense of just how profound an influence um, Marxism had on on intellectual life, mm-hmm. intellectual and political life in America during the 20th century, which is like no dub. But but still, um, it was it was fascinating to realize that 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 up through all, all of these people and you know up through. Um, um, you know, even I, I, I'm trying to think of like the last thing sort of Hitchens wrote about Marxism, you know, but I remember he wrote something responding to maybe it was a review of his friend Martin Amos's book about Stalin, Koba the Dread or something like that. But but the the reckoning with and the reaction to Marxist philosophy um, had a profound intellectual influence on America and, 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 and it continues to this day and it actually kind of mystifies me. Like, like it's all the rage on the left, on the intellectual left again. Um, well, with, 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 there, there are these new journals such as Jacobin, which is, which is pretty famous now. And of course the new left review and things like this. Um, yeah, like N plus one. N plus one. Yeah. Marx influenced and dissent seems like a little resurgent. And so, um, that's one thing is, is, is the reaction to Marxism and to the Soviet Union. Um, another one, I think there's just certain sort of uh, characteristics of the left um, that there's a that there's a reaction to a kind of. Um, I have to make sure I'm talking about them and not myself. Well, we'll get into you in a little bit, little bit actually. So this is good. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> I really should have a better answer. I think I was interested in there's certain sort of qualities of the left. There's a kind of self-righteousness. There's certain ideological uh, blinders the left falls into, uh, you, you know, utop- utopianism, um, certain dysfunction and um, about race in America. That doesn't play through in all of them, but some of the later ones, um, I think Pethoritz and Horowitz, uh, both encountered that in different ways that the sort of pretzels of the left can sometimes twist itself up to up in with respect to race um so more of those kinds of themes than one overarching thesis well and and i was just wondering too i mean with someone like whitaker chambers the the ultimately the uh objection is a is a moral one uh in the sense that i mean he was you know just totally disillusioned by the great purge and and, and stalinism but then uh, take someone like another i was just thinking who else could have been included in this in this book i think people like maybe christopher lash uh and uh his sort of move toward a certain kind of paleoconservatism which was in many ways i think more of a an intellectual um uh response and uh, a distrust of the idea of progress with a capital p um so so that i guess that's what and perhaps we could talk a bit more about that i mean Another thing that I'm wondering too is that some of these writers you've picked, especially like Horowitz or, or Hitchens, are um, their, their their tone is very interesting. I mean, if these figures underwent such conversions, they must have come, at least to some extent, come face to face with their basic fallibility. 
why then do you think some of them seemed, even post-conversion, to be more certain and self-assured in their arguments? And I think a lot of people on the left accused uh, accused their, their former friends of doing this, becoming more self-assured. Rather yeah, than I mean, that's that's a good question. Um, and, and, you know, I, I mean, I don't, just the obvious answer to it, why do they become more self-assured or no less self-assured is... is is it maybe it wasn't in their nature to be? I mean, this is, this is a bad answer. Maybe it wasn't in their nature. One of the, I mean, I talk about a number of them, and I think I use the word kind of romanticism uh, or romantic imagination for a few of them. You know, when they were on the left, the sort of principles they adopted, the ideology that they adhered to, um, was was disdainful of 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 ambiguity and, and compromise and uncertainty from the left and then when they were on the right it's just like it's hard to change those basic sort of characterological dispositions you know you it, it's it's not absolutely true of all i mean i you know it was true to a certain extent of chambers but i think one of the things that's appealing about him and and is appealing about him to a lot of people who really immerse is, is that actually he he became less so um as he ate and there's a lot of ambiguity and complexity and witness famous review of of one of and Rand's Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged or something like that uh, in National Review that was really critical of it. And, and in the very like last year or two of his life, he went back to college to get his like undergraduate degree. So, I mean, he was somebody who actually did, I think, really did moderate um, and really did come to see more more complexity. And it's possible. Um, it requires, I think, you know, what it requires in all of us, which is maturity and, and emotional and intellectual growth, and that these people. Uh, didn't do that, I guess, is evidence that that for whatever combination of reasons, they weren't able to 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 grow in that way. And maybe, you know, maybe the process of transition and conversion and and the traumatic nature of that. Maybe it's just worth pointing out that that actually, I think, within when you're thinking about the human psyche, that makes it harder. Can often make it. It can sometimes be a spur to growth, but it can also make it harder to grow to grow. Um, it would be nice if sort of trauma and disruption produced growth uh, and, and complexity, and it does in some people, but my guess is in more people it produces the opposite. So uh, just to extrapolate that point, I, you say this in the introduction, but it got me thinking actually about um, not just your your subjects, but what's going on today in our current political uh, situation. So the quotation is is this. Uh, this book is a challenge to the reader to wrestle with the ways in which his or her own political suit might strain at the shoulders a bit more than is comfortable to admit. Um, that that's a really interesting point, and it's it's a, an important project. Um, it's, it's one I think that's made further relevant by the fracture of the right and and you know the current ascendance of Trump, as well as the resurrection of socialism in the mainstream left with with Bernie Sanders. What do you think your book has to say to people uh, this election um, You know, I, I think the one thing, and this isn't all of the answer, the one thing that I think it has to say, or, or I've thought about, you know, vis-a-vis Trump, yeah, it's not like my book predicted this or anything like that, but it did reveal, like, what, what vast, vast percentages of the, of the Republican Party base has no, has no allegiance whatsoever or apparently had an incredibly fragile allegiance to what all of these people thought were its kind of clear orthodox principles, right? So, so Trump just flagrantly violated so many conservative orthodoxies. It didn't seem to matter to a majority of the conservative base, which is which is fascinating, and I think evidence of of what I'm saying, and also I think evidence of of that's true becomes even more true. Um, maybe the less like intellectuals, and this is not a critique of intellectuals, but intellectuals, writers feel compelled to articulate to themselves a sort of coherent political worldview. That's our job, you know, and that's what, that's our job, and it's usually our passion. You know, non-intellectual, non-people who are not writers or intellectuals or political activists for a living don't feel that compulsion, and so often their politics are much, much less sort of coherent in a sense jumble of, of attachments and impulses and, and, and visceral feelings. And I don't think that, that, I'm not saying that to question people's legitimacy, it's just it's just that the Trump success has been evidence of that. Um, and, you know, I don't know, what does the book have to say? I think in times of like, we're in an incredibly politicized moment, I think we have been, you know, for years. It's funny, when I was growing up in kind of in the 80s and 90s, the lament was always that we weren't sort of political enough and, you know, voting 
registration was going down and all these things. And I think voting, you know, voting registration and voting numbers have been, at least in presidential years, have been up to almost sort of historic rates over the last few elections. So we're actually becoming this very politicized nation. We're becoming more as a, you know, as a citizenry, more like the people I'm writing about in the book where politics are more deeply embedded in our in our identities and i guess what does the book have to say to that i mean i'm not obviously i'm not against that that's where i am but but then it's sort of you know what it has to say is just i guess you know beware of the beware of the traps or beware of of or or try and be as thoughtful as possible about the ways that politics can meld with all these other parts of of who we are and 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 not necessarily in a way that's distorting anything because there is nothing else but just to try and try and have within ourselves a kind of useful conversation and to try and not assume this is such a kind of wishy-washy anti-polarization thing to say but to assume that the people on the other side kind of operating in good faith you know i'm not a centrist you know, i'm a lefty like i don't i don't think i don't have anything against political passion or activism or even certain kinds of radicalism um but to my money a lot of the most effective uh people in that mold actually have a certain amount of awareness and realism about these things, or at least some of them. I don't know. Have you ever, ever, ever read like Saul Alinsky, like the, the great and nefarious Saul Alinsky is like wonderfully sort of pragmatic and sane and thoughtful about some of these things and the, and the, and the degree to which politics are bound up in interest and self-interest and emotion. Um, and I think was probably a more effective activist and organizer for that. So then I suppose just to, because you mentioned uh, Trump, but you yourself, you admit that you're you're on the or submit that you're on the left, um, and also uh, you pointed out earlier um, as an aside that there are a, a number of magazines popping up that are uh, self-consciously uh, Marxist or, or perhaps just socialist. Um, what what do you think? Because there is this uh, um, uh, resurgence of uh, excitement on the left in America today with the rise of Sanders and with the rise of these magazines. Um, what do you think some of your some of the figures in your book would have to say to the sort of new movement on the left in America? Um, I think well, so, so a few of them are still alive. I, I subscribe to the email newsletter from Horowitz's Foundation Group, and, and I I know what he has to say, which is like, you know, what he has to say to everything to the left of Joe Lieberman, which is you know, it's like you know, socialism is on the rise. You know, Horowitz sees. Uh, sees, you know, radical, some kind of radical authoritarian fascism in, in every hint of anything. So he thinks it's sort of the, the worst elements of the, of the 30s and 60s all over again. <clears throat> um, I think, uh, Padoritz is still alive, but not writing much. I assume he seems, he sees the same thing. I mean, he seems, he sees, he's not as alarmist. It's Horowitz. He doesn't think it's all going to fall apart, but he sees the, the sort of his understanding of the kind of toxicity of the of the new left um, in all aspects of of, of the left. Do, do you think? Let, let's take for instance. I mean, Chambers may be too far away to uh, be able to imagine what he would say today. But what, what what do you think that some of your figures might have something constructive to say? Just something is really valuable, not necessarily alarmist, but just constructive and valuable. Only one who I could think of have something constructive to say is Chambers might. I think Chambers had, as I said, towards the end of his life, had an openness. Um, he had, had an interest, interest, I think, in young people. You know, I think it's possible that, 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 that he would have uh, looked at them and seen that they were, it was his thing, you know, in a sense as a communist and then as an anti-communist, was the sort of bankruptcy of materialism, the sense that that man was the measure of all things and not and not God. So I, I think it's possible he would look at, um, and maybe in a sense even look more at what's happening on the left than, than on the right and see people who were suffering from that lack of higher meaning, who were searching for it. And he might think or probably would think to the extent that they're looking for it in sort of explicitly Marxist uh, notions as, as misguided. I mean, I think he saw ultimately came to see Marxism, communism as a kind of um, kind of false, a false idol in that sense. But but um, but I think he would see a spiritual hunger um, in what's happening, and and would not assume. And I think just also would not assume that it represented the end of all things. I mean, it's interesting for me. I mean, it's interesting. Like when I started writing the book, there wasn't a very much energy on the left. Um, I think a lot of these. These these trans these conversions from left to right tend to happen 
in reaction to moments of energy and ascendance and maybe excess on the left. And when I started writing the book, that not you know the left was so moribund. Now all of a sudden, it's it's not moribund. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so I think you know if you had to predict, there probably will be some people who. Uh, I mean, I think there's movement happening in both directions because obviously you've got so much absurdity and on the right that's going to produce and already has been producing reaction against it. But you'll see some reaction um, against some of the stuff that's happening on the left. For me, I mean, I think what I want to imagine myself doing over the next few years, I probably will write a lot of things that are that are critical of certain aspects of the left. Or, but in terms of my own politics, I'm comfortable and sort of happy about it. I think that it, that that it needs, you know, it. We need we need some energy on the left, and we need some 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 balancing of the sort of power of, you know, corporations and and uh, the moneyed interests or something like that. And so for now, at least, you know, uh, I'm pretty happy about that, and, and and it seems healthy for a political culture. I could imagine a time where maybe I would really start to question, you know, if the worst elements of the left were empowered enough, or I might have some real qualms. My money, we don't. Well, Dan, it was a pleasure talking with you. It was a pleasure reading your book. Thanks uh, very much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, it was great talking to you as well. Thanks for having me. You just listened to our interview with Daniel Oppenheimer, author of Exit Right, The People Who Left the Left and Shaped the American Century. If you liked what Daniel had to say, be sure to check out his webpage at danieloppenheimer.com and pick up a copy of his book, which is definitely a fun read. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast. Finally, Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.